You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. It's uh, my privilege to be uh, speaking this morning. Uh, we're doing four-part series looking at the life of Mary. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to John 2. Just while you're doing that, because you're a clever bunch and you can multitask, I'd like you to look at this picture. How many faces can you see in the tree? Mm. I like a bit of participation. Who's going to shout it out? Five. Six. And it'll go higher than six. I mean, you've got to pay me. Ten. Are people making this up? Seven. How many faces are there in the tree? Look, I've got one here. Oh, back, back. Don't give away the... So I could say, oh, there's one there. There's two there. Yeah. How many faces are there in total? Eleven. Here are the answers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You just flick it back. There you go. Otherwise, people won't be concentrating. Eleven faces they say in the tree. What on earth has this got to do with this story that we're going to be looking at? The reality is that John wrote his, his gospel, his biography of the life of Jesus, as a little bit of like an um, investigation. And the idea was with John that you had to sort of look and discover the clues to work out the picture. We know that Matthew, he wrote his gospel, it was really aimed at the the Jews. And we know that actually Luke aimed his gospel really at the Gentiles. And we know that Mark aimed his gospel really at those that were in Rome. But actually John, if you read his gospel, it's almost saying, discover the picture. Look carefully because there's more details than you first realize. And so that is what I want us to do today as we look at John chapter 2 and verse 1 to 11. And this is all part of this series, looking at Jesus through Mary's eyes. So I'm going to read the uh, chapter 2 verse 1 to 11. Jesus changes water to wine. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This The first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus 
revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that this story is recorded for us to read today. I pray that you give us these sort of investigative eyes, that we could look and discover something that's hidden in this passage for us today. Lord, some of us, it may be the first time we've ever read this. For some of us, we might have read it for years, but we still believe it's your word and can speak to us. Come now, we pray. Reveal your glory to us today. Amen. Okay, so I want to look at this. We're looking through Mary's eyes. And, and Mary speaks twice. We, we know that in the passage. Jesus speaks to her and says, Dear woman, dear woman. Jesus' mother was at this wedding. We're not sure what day of the week the wedding was on. That sounds a surprising thing. If you were a virgin, you got married on a Wednesday. If you were a widow, you got married on a Thursday. It doesn't tell us those details, but we do know that it would have been one of those days there had been this wedding. We know that Jesus would have had a very special relationship with his mother Mary. If you don't know anything about the Bible, let me just explain. Mary was a teenager when she conceived Jesus. So we know that Jesus now is 30, so we think, well, Mary must have been early 40s. Very young, I would like to say. You know, she was a young mum with a 30-year-old. We know that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know that angels turned up and told the shepherds. We know that the wise men called Magi came from the east bringing gifts. We know that when Mary and Joseph took this baby to the temple that Simeon prophesied over him, there would have been an amazing relationship. It says in Luke that Mary stored all these things in her heart. Her heart must have been pumping about her son. We believe that Jesus had spent probably 18 years as a carpenter. When you became a man, you would have taken on the family business. We're not sure if Joseph is alive at this point. In some respect, he's not mentioned at the wedding. We don't think he is. But then in John 6, it does say, oh, Jesus, this is son of Joseph, as if maybe he was. We're not sure. Most commentators would say they think not. What we would be aware of is Mary really leaned on her relationship with Jesus. There's some, and uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to over-egg this, I'm just trying to look at the story, that would say Mary was involved in, in running the wedding. Why would she have been aware that the wine had run out? And so there's some talk, well, actually, you know, was she involved in it? Was it part of her responsibility? There was some talk that even it would have been a close family friend. And some commentators would say this. Mary says two things. The first thing she says is this. Jesus, we have a problem. She doesn't quite say that. What does she say? She says this. They have no more wine. I, I just thought about that. I thought for some of us, we probably need just to take away that one point this morning. She didn't tell Jesus what to do. She told him what the problem was. And I sometimes think if we're really brutal, when we come to God in prayer, do we tell him what to do or do we tell him what the problem is? 
You see, I think so often I come and I say, oh, God, I need this. Whereas what I probably need to say is, my marriage is struggling. That was an example I'm not trying to confess here publicly. (laughs) You might suddenly say, actually, my health is not good. But it's what we tend to say is, you must heal me. You must do this. Mary presents the problem. Yeah, it's almost like, I'm in debt. Do you admit your need? Or do you tell God, look, if my scratch card wins, I'll even give something to the church. You see, we tend to tell him the solution rather than just coming and admitting what is the problem. She invited Jesus into her everyday dilemma. And we can too. And I think that's something that I would take there. Now then Jesus uses this title, Dear Woman. And, and for many of us, we can think, oh, that seems a bit formal. Some would say it's a bit like ma'am. Okay, ma'am. You know, was that the way he responded? Some think, was he rude? Well, I didn't think he was rude because if you read the, the later part of the gospel, when he's on the cross and he's dying and he cares for his mother, he says to John, you know, take this woman. I guess, if anything, it was slightly abrupt. I find it really interesting because Jesus could have said, yes, mum, I'll deal with it straight away. Because he did deal with it straight away, but that's not what he said. Why? You see, I believe that this was a defining point in the life of Mary, that she had to go from being a family member to being a follower. You see, she'd always grown up being the mum, being involved. You see, what Jesus is really saying to her is, it's not your place to be calling out your, my power. You see, if you think about it, he tells us throughout the gospel, I only do what? What I see the Father telling me to do. And so I would say that this was almost a crux of it, where he starts saying, I've got to do the Father's business now. It says in John 8, verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own, but speak what the Father has taught me to do. You see, I think Jesus is is encouraging a subtle shift in Mary, which I think she picks up on. Actually, what he's saying is, I don't want you just to, to call upon me as family, I want you to call upon me in Faith. In fact, even somewhere in, in Luke, Luke 11, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman shouts out in the crowd, blessed is the mother who gave birth to you. Wow, it must be amazing to have been your mum. But actually, Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. I'm not looking for this position. I'm looking for faith. So the first thing that Mary said was this. There's a problem. What was the second thing that she said? There's only two things recorded in the passage. It's not a trick. The first was, we've got a problem, there's no wine. The second was what? Do whatever he tells you. So I would say she'd move from this place of almost, I've just got to engage this family member in my dilemma to actually, I've got to trust him in faith. She'd never seen a miracle before. And I think Jesus in this encounter suddenly saying, actually, I want you. Now, I think the beautiful thing for us is that's true for all of us. 
That can be scary. If, if you're like me, see, I, I'm from good Baptist stock, to be totally honest. I mean, we can trace our ancestors back to Jesus in my family. That does, my humor doesn't always translate, I know, into people that don't speak English <laughs> as a first language. But the reality is my parents went to church, my grandparents went to church. I'm I'm assuming my great-grandparents went to church. When I was a kid, my uncle and my aunt went to church, my cousins went to church. You know what I'm saying? We we were in wholesale. So does that make me a Christian? No, because actually Jesus is saying it's not about family. It's about faith. We can't rely upon our past. If you're a parent, we pray for our kids. Because although we come and we thank God for the life of them, they've got to make their own journey of faith. But then for some of you, you might think, I've never had anything to do with God in the past. doesn't matter. Because it's not about family. It's not about, oh, did my family take me to a Catholic school? Did my family... No, no, actually, you can approach Jesus through faith. Surely that's what we learn from Mary. And then what happens when Mary starts believing? And I love this, don't you? Water gets turned into wine. Jesus informs us, John, sorry, informs us there were these stone water jars. We heard about it in the, in the poem that we had before. Most houses at, those, at that time would have had one. You basically had one stone water jar, and you would use it for all the ceremonial things. This house had how many? Six. So basically, they'd probably gone round to five neighbours or friends and said, look, we've got loads of people coming round. Could I borrow your stone jar? And had gathered them together. Now, what I found fascinating about this, they didn't drink out of them. Yet if you listen to it, what did it say? The water contained in there was not for drinking, but for ceremonial washing. You see, as a Jew, if you travel to somebody's house, you'd have to sort of wash your hands in a very ceremonial way. In fact, sometimes they even washed in between courses of meals. In fact, whatever they were using to cook with, they'd often have to wash those utensils. So they had these jars just for ceremonial washing. It wasn't like, oh, golly, I'm absolutely gagging, I'll drink. It was for washing. We know this. We know it from the Old Testament. We know that's why it was even stone. There's so many details in here. You see, because it said in in the the Old Testament book called Leviticus that if it was clay, the jar could get contaminated. But if you had a stone one, it couldn't get contaminated. So get stone because they last longer. I mean, this is, you know, it's almost like the granite worktop kind of approach, isn't it? Don't get your foot mica that could get burnt. Have the one that's going to last forever. They've got these stone jars. Jesus instructs fills to the brim. There's no magic here. It's not diluting the wine. It's, it's not, oh, well, you know, just half fill it and I'll slip in a little bit. I've got it. Oh, God, it's all gone red. That's nice. I don't believe it's that at all. Jesus says, fill it to the brim. I mean, this was a massive thing. In those days, the way the weddings would go is the guy at night would go to the bride's house. So suppose this was his house here. Often what they would do in a wedding is they would walk and he'd take all his friends to the bride's house. And they'd go and find the bride and they would march them back at night because they'd have these torch-lit processions. And the idea was that you could almost do this dancing and it was all floodlit. I mean, obviously they didn't have, you know, spotlights and all that kind of stuff. They're just trying to create an atmosphere. They didn't then go back and do a quick one-hour service, have a nice meal, and jet off somewhere hot for a week. 
Their honeymoon was in the house. Their honeymoon was the wedding. And so basically, they would spend seven days eating and drinking with friends. That's what you did. And people just come on round, you know what I'm saying? It's a bit like the welcome lunch, just turn on up, you know what I'm saying? And, and people just came for days. Seven days, I guess like the honeymoon now, seven days, you would just have this celebration. But in an honor culture, if you ran out, you brought dishonor and shame. And the guy was responsible. So if he ran out, can you believe this? This is 2,000 years ago. The bride's family could sue him. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a blame, there's a claim. You see what I'm saying? It's not that new. This is what they reckon would happen. Literally. Hey, you've not done it. You've brought shame to my family. You should have provided. We should have had seven days. So suddenly there's this massive dilemma. There's not enough wine. What is going to happen? And then suddenly, Jesus does this first miracle. And I, mean, I just love the maths of it. I mean, my head, I just can't understand it. How much wine he created. They do think in those days, because the wine, they did dilute. And so they reckon that the, the, the amount he created was worth 2,000, 2,000 glasses. But often it would dilute one to three. So it could be worth six thousand glasses I, I, I mean I, I obviously I'm a bear with a very small brain I was thinking you wouldn't be able to drink all that before it went off you'd be doing cooking a lot of lasagna just to use up the red wine wouldn't you I mean what on earth happened to it all it's just like this amazing overflow even there the master of the banquet says, hey, normally people just put out the rough stuff at the end, but you've kept the best. I don't know about you. I, I feel that there's some people here today, and you feel, if I'm really honest, my life feels like it's plain water, and I thought it would be better than this. And I believe that actually God would say, come on, he could intervene today. You could think, oh, man, alive. I, I thought so. I, why don't we believe for God to bring some intervention? I don't know what it is you're looking for. But I do know the God who turns water into wine. I mean, can you imagine that? You know, it's not just a bottle of Evian. I mean, we're talking the nicest wine you can think of. This is where it was going. That's the God. That's the God. Who knows? What, what, what do you need today? Why couldn't we pray for that? Now, in some respect, I like to think, oh, great story. There you go. I can stop early, 10 minutes early, and you'd be really pleased. My concern, my concern with the Bible, and I'm not sure if this is even a true word, so I'm just going to explain it. I, my concern is that we do eisegesis on the Bible rather than exegesis. Oh, long word. Just thought I'd throw that one in to see if you're still with me. Eisegesis means we talk ourselves into the passage rather than exegesis, where we take God out of the passage. What do we learn about God? See, so my concern about something like water into wine is that we just put ourselves in there and say, hey, if I'm a Christian, it should be wine, wine, wine. Not whining, you know what I'm saying, just great things. And so we can think, oh, actually, it's all about me and what I could take out. But actually, if we really understand the passage, John tells us this was a what? A sign. 
If you know anything about the Gospel of John, I tried to allude to that at the beginning. He writes this way, saying, hey, look, you've got to try and discover who this Jesus is. There are seven signs in the book of John. In fact, John has got 21 chapters, but they call the first 12 the book of signs, and they call the next, it's going to be 11, the book of glory. And so he's got these first seven that say, I, sorry, the signs are water into wine. Wow, this is what God does. The sign of healing the official son, that's in chapter 4. The sign of healing the paralytic, that's in chapter 5. The sign of feeding the 5,000. We'd call it 20,000 because that was just the number of men. The sign of walking on the water, that's in chapter 6. The sign of giving sight to the blind, that is in chapter 9. The sign of raising Lazarus from the dead, that is in chapter 11. This was the first sign. So what was the sign pointing to? What was the whole point of this? Is it just so you takes away the shame, the embarrassment for this, this guy? Well, I think John tells us this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Canaan in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So what would have Mary have seen? Yeah, we understand that she knew the history, but suddenly she'd seen water into wine. This was incredible. I believe that this was the glory of God being revealed. We don't very often talk about this, you know, Eastern Church, Western Church, but in the Eastern Church, they celebrate this event along with the nativity and the baptism of Jesus on the 6th of January because they say it's a point where God's glory was revealed. And so why don't we celebrate all these three events together? We know that John itself, remember, we've got to do this. I don't know if you're into these kind of things. Maybe I'm just, you know, sad like that. Treasure trails, have any of you done one of these? I gave my wife one for Christmas. Well, Father Christmas did, so let's not spoil it. I gave my wife one at Christmas. You, you go to Richmond Park, and we spent four hours looking for all these trails around Richmond Park because you can find the clues, and you can work out where the treasure is. There's no real treasure. It's just a fun activity for an afternoon. But John is like that. And right at the beginning, in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us We have seen his glory. I told you, the second half of the book is called the book of glory. Oh, because suddenly we discover something. We are discovering something about the glory of God. Now, I wish I could put that tree up there and say that came. Do you remember the one I started with all the faces? And say that's actually from the book of John. It's not. But I feel that if we look at this passage, we will see... 11 things like that. And now you are panicking about lunch. Don't panic about it. I've cooked the lunch. You can come back any time. What are the things where we see the glory of God revealed? I'm going to go very quick. You can jot this down. You can quiz me afterwards. You can listen to their online. You can find it on our webpage. The first thing that we believe the glory is revealed in this particular thing, because he says what? My time has not yet come. Now we can think, that seems a strange thing to say. This is a phrase that is probably used six, seven, or eight times throughout the book of John. 
Again, if you look at the first half of the book of John, he keeps saying, my time's not come, my time has not come. We can see it in John 7, verse 30. It's almost like these people, they tried to arrest Jesus. They were going to try and, you know, beat him up or something. But it says they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come. So there was this sort of journey throughout the book of John that, well, it's not this hour, something, it's, it's not quite come. You could read again in, in John chapter 8, verse 20. I haven't got this one up. He spoke these words by teaching in the temple where the offerings were put in, yet no one sees them because his time had not come. But then suddenly you slip into the second half of the book and we discover the time has come. Well, what is the time? The time is referring to the death and resurrection of Jesus. In John 12, verse 23, Jesus replies, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When he's praying the prayer in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that he might glorify you. So right in this right thing, it's almost like the clue is there. Can you see the face? This is the glory of God. He's talking about the hour. I've got to be careful that I don't over-egg all of these. But many have said, actually, there was a clue here because there were six stone water jars. Well, if you know anything about numerology in the Bible, you know seven was considered the number of perfection. So the best that man could do was one short. It was incomplete. And Jesus comes along and does it. Now, he doesn't create another jar, so I don't want to over-egg that one. I'll jump on to number three quickly. What do we find about the glory of God here? Well, we find the best that Judaism could do was ceremonial washing. Whereas we know that Jesus Christ says that when I die and rise again, I do that for the purification of your sin. So this was a picture where we could discover something. It says in 1 John 1, I haven't got these up, you just have to look it up. If we walk in the light, as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So it's almost like, well, the best you could do is some ceremonial washing, which you'll have to do again and again and again. But actually, if you come to Jesus Christ, he can cleanse you once and for all. Oh, and I just thought we were drinking red wine. Can you see? Number four, Jesus is revealed as the perfect bridegroom. Because he provided enough for everyone to come and to keep coming. You weren't going to consume 6,000 glasses in seven days. You see what I'm saying? It's so easy, isn't it, for others to sort of suddenly think, oh, well, actually, there's not quite enough. This bridegroom has struggled. But if you look in the picture, Jesus is the one who lavishly provides all that is required by the bride. Well, the Bible describes the church as the bride. Cha-ching, my eyes are opened. John wants us to know that the new kingdom is one of glory and quality. I mean, isn't it fascinating? Even this guy says, hey, you've kept the best wine. Because that points to something of the glory of God because it's of such quality. Oh, there's another face that I've just spotted in the tree. I, I have to be careful because you can dig down and I think, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm really trying to be as careful as I can. But they reckon that if you start at verse 1 of John and you get to verse 1 of chapter 2, 
that this is the seventh day of the gospel. And that actually he's been gathering disciples and he's traveled. So actually by now, this is the seventh day. And so Mary would have understood the seventh day as being a new season of creation. Oh, I just thought it was wine for a wedding. No, no, this is, if I think about it, creation occurred in Genesis at the beginning in seven days. John writes this one and says, hey, by day seven, God's revealed Oh, I get it. It's the glory of God. You see, Mary would have known her Old Testament, and she would have known what What happened. One of the greatest in the Old Testament was Moses. What was the first miracle Moses did? Some of you think of that. I tell you, the water got turned to blood. What's the first miracle that Jesus did? The water gets turned to wine. Oh, he's so much better because Moses came and actually the miracle he did didn't bless anyone. The miracle Jesus did blessed at least 6,000. Oh, he's greater than Moses. Is that one of these things that I begin to understand when I look at this? On the third day. It wasn't the third day. Because I've just told you the book started at day one. This would be the seventh So why is the phrase in there? Because if you understand the gospel, you understand this. On the third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so right at the beginning, when the glory is being revealed, oh, he's going to rise. What? It's it's pointing to this. The whole chapter, chapter 2, I've only been able to do half of it. I'm running out of time. I'm going to go even quicker now. The whole chapter is about purity and a wedding. Well, if you know the Bible, you know that it ends with God returning for a great wedding feast and, and declaring the people pure. Judgment has been done. Oh, so suddenly this one miracle, it's not just about a few people having a drink at wedding. It goes from creation right through to eternity. In fact, if I had time, I wish I could go through the whole of John, because you can pick it up. In John chapter 2 and, and, and to verse 4, Jesus is seen in the temple. He's seen talking to a rabbi. He's seen at a well in Samaria. All of these institutions, Jesus is superior. We know from chapters 5 to chapter 10, it's about the Sabbath. It's about the Passover. It's about the Feast of Tabernacles. It's even about Hanukkah. And in all those institutions, Jesus is superior. Because John is trying to say, Understand, look at the picture. Number 10, I believe I'm up to. I said I'd get to 11. We know that free-flowing wine was a prophetic picture of the Messiah coming. So in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, he was a prophet, chapter 25, verse 6. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty, this is talking about the people of God, will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine. You could read the similar thing in Amos 9, and I haven't got time, or Hosea 14. And my 11th one, it's one of the signs that pointed. So when you look at this passage again, what happened to Mary? I believe she suddenly went from, I've known the facts about this boy, to I'm suddenly understanding Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? 
chapter 1 and verse 51, it said this. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The glory of God will be revealed in this book. If you jump to the end of the book, John chapter 20 and verse 30, he says basically, I wrote all these things so that you can understand who this Jesus is. And it's all here in chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. I want to ask you the question. Have you, like Mary, seen who Jesus is? Have you? Are you like the master of the banquet and the the guests? You think, well, I've enjoyed the wine, but I never understood who Jesus was. Maybe you're like the servant in the story. You've observed the events and you know the facts. But who is Jesus? Or maybe like the disciples, you suddenly thought, it says at the end, his disciples put their faith in him. Because there was something about the glory of God revealed. I'm sorry that I've taken longer than I should have done. I'd like to pray. I know the band will be coming back. We are going to be singing. The song that many of you know, water you turned into wine, opened the eyes of the blind, there's no one like you. None like you. That's the truth, isn't it? That's what this passage has been all about. It goes on, our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Before we do sing that, it's two people, two groups of people that I'd like to pray for. Some of you, if you're really honest, you think, I'm in desperate need. You think, golly, I feel like I'm running out. I feel like life is tough. I need Jesus to break in. The bridegroom needed something from Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you and ask what it is. But if you think, actually, even this morning, Pete, right now, I think, In the worship in there, I do need something, Jesus. Why don't you just stand just where you are? No one's going to ask you any question. And I'm going to pray that you receive something from Jesus today. Jesus, I want to pray for those that have stood. Those that have come and just thought, man alive, I need you. Lord, for some it could be health, for some it could be their kids, some it could be their marriage, some it could be their career. They come today, could be a family member, and they say, God, I need you. Jesus, I thank you, you are the one that turns water into wine. You're the one that can do the impossible, the miracle. You can break in in a way that far exceeds. We want to come and stand with these folk today. Say, God, would you do a miracle for them? Would you do a miracle? I'm just encouraging them to stand there. I'd also like to pray for some others. If you're really honest, you've heard this story many times and you've never really thought, who is this Jesus? And, and you might have been a Christian for years and you think, I would like to see more of who Jesus is. I'd like to understand him in a greater way. I'll be honest, I'd be stood now. I am stood now. I want that. I think, oh, Jesus, I don't just want to limit you to what I've already said. I want to go deeper with you. If that is you, I'd encourage you to stand now. 
Jesus, for all those that are standing now, myself included, I do come and say, I, I don't just want a, a distant appreciation of you. I, I don't just want to be like the bridegroom that, that, that drinks and doesn't really understand who you are. I do want to be like Mary and the disciples, that I put my faith in you because I've seen something of your glory. I pray today, this week, we'll go deeper with you. Deeper, I ask, in Jesus' name.